My name is Lucy Rocker and I'm the founder of Soberistas.com. I'm Julia Sinclair. I'm Professor of Addiction Psychiatry down at the University of Southampton and clinically I lead an alcohol care team in Southampton General Hospital. Lucy, do you want to start just by telling us a bit about your background and I guess your relationship with alcohol? Yes, yeah, sure. So, um, well, I, I was born in 1975, which turns out to be a very um, key cohort in terms of women and and sort of alcohol dependency. So, there were a lot of um, women in my era of my era who who got sort of drawn into the Ladette culture in the 90s, who were drinking pints. It was very sort of normalised. Became kind of de rigueur, um, Zoe Ball, Sarah Cox, and those sorts of public figures who sort of endorsed that um, festival, drinking, kind of music lifestyle. And I got very much drawn into that. I demonstrated at the age of 13 a complete lack of an off switch. So the very first time I drank alcohol, I got horribly drunk at a party of my parents' friends, um, unbeknownst to my parents, me and my sister hit the drinks room and got really, really drunk. Um, I got, I threw up everywhere and got sort of dragged home in uh, <laughs> a lot of trouble when they did realise. And that was my first experience of drinking alcohol. So it, for me, kind of drinking uh, destructively was not a progressive thing. It just, I always just had a very destructive relationship with alcohol getting drawn into the Ladette culture when I was in my late teens, early 20s, sort of worsened that because it normalised heavy drinking. All my friends were heavy drinkers. Everybody was heavy drinkers. It was very much kind of um, culturally normalised. Um, and then and then I think by the time I got to my mid, my early 30s, the, the sort of penny had dropped and I realised I was actually scaring myself a little bit. I was having a lot of blackouts. Um and getting myself into dangerous situations because I had drunk so much, but it, but always kind of going out with the intention of not drinking very much, always going out with the intention of having one or two and then completely losing control and drinking one, two bottles of wine and not being able to remember getting home. So, yeah, I mean, 22 years of heavy binge drinking, basically, against a backdrop of very normalised binge drinking culture. And was it always something you did socially or did you ever kind of do it privately and secretively? I don't think I ever did it secretively. I mean, I did drink on my own, but I never felt like I was hiding it from people. But um, it was it was mostly social. And then I got divorced in my late 20s. And the sort of combination of being depressed off the back of a divorce and being stuck in the house every night with my daughter who was very young and being quite lonely and isolated uh combined to sort of that it becoming a bit of a crutch I would say but I don't I never kind of felt as if it was secret I always felt very much like it was a treat a reward and I deserved it because I was going through a divorce and I think the the kind of conversation around alcohol was very different then that was kind of early noughties, mid, about 2004, 2005, and there wasn't the same recognition, I don't think, about alcohol being harmful unless you were, in inverted commas, an alcoholic. So I felt very much as though drinking a bottle of red wine every night was fine, and I was actually doing my heart <laughs> some good as I was throwing in my nice expensive bottles of red wine in the supermarket trolley. I was actually being quite healthy and living the Mediterranean lifestyle. I was really in denial. Um, 
And then the kind of the going out was ramped up because my daughter would go to her dad's every other weekend and I'd be on my own. So I kind of reverted back to teenage behaviour, going out with my friends, going to nightclubs again. And then obviously alcohol was always a, a big part of that because of the friends I had and the life I led. And you're speaking there about your mental health and alcohol use. I guess there's quite a complex relationship, isn't there? A lot of people kind of self-medicate and try and overcome their mental health issues, at least in the short term, by drinking. Was it your kind of go-to, you know, anti-depression, anti-anxiety sort of drug? Yeah, but um, I always saw it as a way of, of, like I say, sort of treating myself and cheering myself up like something to look forward to and it was only after I stopped drinking that I realized what a massive impact alcohol had been having on my mental health so I was having lots of panic attacks really kind of physical panic attacks you know sort of palpitations racing heart um and had no idea that was alcohol until I remember I remember googling when I was about 34 35 just before I stopped drinking I remember googling uh does can you does does do hangovers cause panic attacks and found this massive forum <laughs> thousands and thousands of people saying they had these horrendous panic attacks and and palpitations with a hangover and I was like oh my god that's what's been going on because for me I'd, I mean I there were many times I thought I was having a heart attack it was so severe and they were always when I had a hangover but I had no idea that that was related to alcohol but again I, I mean now we've got social media there's so many people who post on Instagram and who talk about this stuff. So it's it's so much more sort of well-known, well-documented now that mental health is really impacted negatively by alcohol use. But 20 years ago, I had no idea that. And, and, and many, many times I went to the doctors and, and with depression and anxiety complaints, never, ever was I asked how much alcohol you're drinking, which staggers me now because it's such an obvious correlation to me. But... At the time, I don't think people kind of were aware in the same way they are now. Julia, let's let's come to you. So we've, we've got this story here about kind of problematic alcohol consumption being normalised in society. Is that a historical thing? How big is this current problem? That's a really good question because, you know, we've always, mankind, personkind has always had a kind of complex relationship with alcohol. You know, it's there in Noah's Ark and it's there in the Holcomb Bible. There's pictures of Noah, you know, kind of being kind of very drunk and dragged out of, you know, sort of crushing grapes. So, you know, there's we have this long and historical um, relationship that society has tried to kind of deal with. And it's got more complex as, as, you know, kind of society has also evolved. And, and at the moment, and particularly in this country, there is a very, I would say, toxic dance between the economic impacts of the needs of the drinks industry, as our government might see it, and actually the health harms that alcohol are are causing and and these are not particularly well balanced you know and i think we're we're still with alcohol where we were with tobacco 30 years ago that you know every, of course everyone should be able to smoke if they want to it's a personal choice 
um, you know, the, and an industry has lots of money to be made. And we've moved on from that now. And and in the research forum, you know, nobody would suggest that, um, you know, anybody should take money from the tobacco industry to fund lung cancer research. And yet there is still some ambivalence that perhaps, you know, there are kind of industry sponsored um grant giving sort of foundations around that we as researchers should perhaps consider taking money from because it's money and there's so little money in the system. So we have a very complex relationship at the moment at a political level. And I think of that as like the macro level, you know, the sort of the the national policy, the thing that then drives social norms, as Lucy was talking about. And, you know, and the, the, the relative difference between the money that drinks industry will pump into advertising. And again, this is a really live issue now with with the um, debate around low and no alcohol drinks. But actually, it seems to just be a seepage for kind of selling more of the same, if you see what I mean. Our relationship with alcohol has always been complex. And it's more complex now than it's ever been. And that is the tensions between public health versus big business and where the person gets left in the middle of that. And I think we have an increasing culture which says the individual is key and what the individual does is entirely the responsibility of the individual. And it ignores the weight of evidence that says that all of us, our behaviours affected by the norms we see around us, as Lucy was saying, the, um, the encouragement that we have, the advertising that we see, the incentives that we're given. Lucy ran a campaign a few years ago to try and get some of the big companies to, to sell birthday cards that didn't have drinks references on them. You know, those sorts of things that whilst people now will talk about the impact of alcohol on their mental health, it's almost impossible not to buy a birthday card without some kind of drinks as your form of celebration on it. So we have this very complex relationship with both seeing alcohol, as Lucy was saying, as a treat and a reward and all of these things, particularly during COVID, that's got even more of that case, but also knowing about the health harms, but perhaps trying to palm that off onto a few poor, sad individuals who can't really cope with it, as opposed to the greater group of people who moderately drink, whatever that means. I'm interested in kind of where we are in this sort of transition. You you drew a comparison with smoking, you know, and smoking is something which is certainly very much socially frowned upon now. But going back, you know, maybe just 10 years, that wasn't always the case. Are we in the same kind of transition, do you think, with alcohol? Is alcohol, you know, the favourite drug of young people now, for example? Is there a generational issue here going on? Lucy spoke about the kind of 90s drinking culture. Are we past the peak, do you think? I would hope so. And there is certainly some evidence to suggest that our youngers and betters may be a bit more sensible about this um, than than our, our our group, and I'm a little bit older than Lucy, um, but so there is that sense that the the next generation. But we've still probably got about thirty years of health harms to deal with, and I think one of the challenges that we have at the moment is that the people who are in power and who are creating the narratives are politicians, you know, our health leaders, our journalists. They are all the people in their 50s and 60s 
who have perhaps draw, grown up with this normalized way of thinking about alcohol. And I think we really do need um, the input from, you know, a new generation who are much less sort of sold on it. And so, so I think there is that. But then the separate question that you asked around um, kind of where we are with regards to tobacco, I don't think we're on the same trajectory yet at all. And that is really worrying. And part of that is about the fact that 80% of the population still drink alcohol, whereas now it's only 18% of the population smoke. And so we've had that flip now that smoking is a marginalized pursuit and there's still real concerns about the fact of the health inequalities and, you know, the most vulnerable people and people with severe mental illness are more likely to be smoking and harder to stop and all of all of those things. So there are still massive health inequalities. But with alcohol, I think it is more complicated because of the fact that so much of our nighttime economy which while smoking may have been a byproduct of the nighttime economy and it wasn't something you wish to sort of overclamp down on 20 years ago, it's essential to the nighttime economy of much of what's happening at the moment um, in the UK. And that is something that has to change for us to really make progress. And bring it back to a kind of individual level, Lucy, I'm interested in your thoughts about if somebody has an alcohol problem now in 2023, what support is offered to them? What the routes into help are for somebody who maybe is feeling shame that they are somehow to blame for their addiction? Um, you know, what services, what support is available out there? Well, I think, you know, what what Julia said about that that sort of societal uh focus on a small group of people whose fault it is that they've kind of got out of control with alcohol is it suits the industry it suits politicians so and the byproduct of that is that people who then realize they have got a problem with alcohol feel an awful lot of shame and embarrassment and guilt and so asking for help well first of all recognizing that you've got a problem is really difficult asking for help is really difficult and i think you know there's problems for men and women, but certainly the women on Saberistas, a common story I hear is that they're very worried about going to their doctor and asking for help. For instance, one of the reasons being that they're worried that their children may be taken off them or social services may get involved if they're deemed to have an alcohol problem. So there's lots of reasons why people won't go and ask for help even you know sort of traditional resources such as Alcoholics Anonymous people are worried about going there in case they bump into somebody from wherever somebody they know from work um and also there are sort of barriers in terms of the label alcoholic lots of people aren't really sure what an alcoholic is are they bad enough to go to Alcoholics Anonymous do they need to go to rehab or are they just somebody who needs to cut back a bit it, it's really great I think you know the whole issue of alcohol dependency or alcohol misuse disorder is a very grey area so online help for me, is a really, really good way of getting around that barrier because people don't have to cope with the shame. They don't have to worry about bumping into somebody they know. It's something that they can access when they've got a terrible hangover. You know, you can sort of reach them when they're in at that point where they're really receptive to getting help. Um, and I think it's better than the traditional sources of help, and especially because so many of those sources of help were council run and have closed down and been starved of of finances over the last few years so they don't exist anymore so you're left with this 
basically option of AA or smart recovery, which are good for some people and work, and then a whole host of online support, which seems to have really, really appealed to particularly women. 90% of the people on Sobristers are female. It really seems to have hit that age group as well of the kind of 45 to 65 um cohort that julia was talking about before both the kind of people my age basically who were who grew up in the ladette culture and they feel an awful lot of shame and worry about asking for help from anybody in real life so that seems to have taken over as the most common source of help in conjunction with lots and lots of great books which we call quitlet about stopping drinking and julia is there other stuff we can do to help people? Is there evidence-based research that shows, you know, we can help people with alcohol problems, we're just not doing it because of a lack of funding or a lack of implementation? Yes, and, you know, this is going to be part of the focus of, of what we're talking about um, at the BAP is is there's a number of things. There's there's the use of language is the first thing, which is, you know, is one of those sort of public health things that we just need to get more savvy about. We've got much better about it within mental health now. We don't talk about schizophrenics. We don't, you know, we've, we've got it, but we haven't yet got it around alcohol. I think there is the thing about accessing services, as, as Lucy was talking about. And at the moment, if you assume at a local level, kind of the number of people you can work out who, who are likely to be alcohol dependent. In most areas, it's approximately 10% of those people who are accessing some form of support. So 90% of people aren't getting it. So for me, that is the area, and this is what we're going to be talking about, that we absolutely have to focus on. But there is then the, the group of people who are perhaps much more severely alcohol dependent, who are going to need that specialist clinical input. And actually, the evidence base for both psychological and pharmacological treatments for alcohol dependence is really good. You know, there are there's not many drugs, but there are some um, at the BAP. There's going to be, I'm sure, lots of talks about the new psychedelics, which everyone's getting really excited about. But my point would be until we can get those people to there and to the other treatments that are currently there and there's a really good evidence for it's not that the, the treatments aren't there it's getting people to them because of the funding because of the stigma that's been talked about so for me there's real scientific interest in new bright shiny drugs but actually that's going to help a tiny tiny proportion of people and i describe myself as a social psychopharmacologist and what we need to do is make those bright shiny new drugs almost be part of the kind of call to kind of say there are evidence based treatments not just these ones and that's where i then get a bit frustrated when you know that the case is made that we need psychedelics because all the other treatments don't work they do work but people don't have access to them. And I just think we have a responsibility as a scientific community to really kind of draw through the sense of the stigma from alcohol, how people might then go from something that's a little bit you know, problematic to something that's absolutely controlling their life. And we as scientists and clinicians need to say, there's some really good and interesting stuff here, which helps you realize that this might be a brain disorder. Like Lucy was saying, she never had a normal relationship with alcohol. Some people don't. And we need to then kind of feed that loop back into those earlier public health and kind of public health messaging areas in order to make a coherent case to kind of improve people's lives. Otherwise, it's just a slightly sort of, you know, intellectual folly. <laughs> 
So you're both going to be hosting this public lecture in Manchester on Monday, the 24th of July, half past seven to nine o'clock in the evening. Um, alcohol, how much is too much? Who are you hoping is going to come along to that? Well, from my perspective, I would hope we would have everyone from the students still around in, in Manchester University. You know, Manchester is, is known as a relatively heavy drinking city. So people kind of early on who might be actually interested in this, both from kind of being inspired to think about policy to kind of the neuroscience around it, but also everybody who kind of thinks, oh, I'm sure my relationship with alcohol is fine. But and I, lots of other public lectures I've given, people have come up to me afterwards and said, I came because I was worried about my brother. I left realizing I had a problem at a problem, too. So I think for me, it's about anybody who's curious and interested to know about alcohol. It's just one of those subjects that I think is relevant to everybody. And, you know, whether whether somebody identifies as having a problem themselves or they know somebody and or it's just that they go out and they see drunkenness, you know, on trains or in the city centre or wherever. It's something that affects everybody. It's something that's in our lives pretty much all the time. It's a, a social problem. So I think it's kind of relevant to everybody. Mm -hmm.